0: the word of our God. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished the building, building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God. You have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask also for an understanding heart this evening, that we might uh, learn and grow even from Solomon's example. And even as we consider some of his failures, we ask that you would work within our own hearts and lives for the glory of Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. It's obviously not a surprise for any of you for me to say that we have incredibly deceptive hearts uh, because you all have experienced that firsthand and also because Scripture makes it very clear. We come to somewhere like Romans 7 and Paul speaking of his constant struggle to live for God and uh, sincerely desiring to but at war within himself. With the old nature within him, and, and and when we read that, if we're honest about what Paul's saying, and not trying to uh, divide it up the wrong way, but just acknowledge that Saul, uh, Paul continued to struggle with that even after he was a believer. He continued to struggle with the old nature warring within him every single day. Uh, then we uh, can actually be encouraged that Paul understood our situation and our own internal struggle with a divided heart. We have a divided heart often, and Solomon, perhaps, is the epitome of a divided heart in Scripture. Uh, He's the man that, uh, depending on what text we're looking at, we might wonder if he saved at all, or we might think he's this amazing man of faith. Um, and this text, I think, especially helps us consider that. Uh, and so as we look at this text, a number of points just working our way through the text, but all of which will will emphasize this tension of a divided heart and hopefully guide us to take steps in our own lives to seek the Lord uh, for a, a unifying of our heart. So that like David, when David said, Unite my heart to fear your name. And that's what Solomon needed. And that's what we need. And so let's look at Solomon. First, his divided heart, verses 1 through 3. As we look at verses 1 through 3, we we ask, does Solomon love the Lord or not? And it uh, is is a good uh, image of Solomon or not. And you have to say, well, there's the negative and there's the positive. So there's the negative. Two negatives are put in front of us in this passage. The first is uh, that he makes a treaty with Egypt and takes this foreign wife, the daughter of the king of Egypt. Now, how deceptive can our hearts be? a vast majority of commentaries look at that and say, the text doesn't actually say that that was a sin. And the only nation that they were absolutely forbidden for marrying uh, uh, women from is the Canaanites. Uh, and so, uh, well, this isn't a sin. I think there's there's a vast uh, failure to understand Uh, both the the subtlety of their own deceptive hearts, as the commentaries write that, and uh, a failure to understand and think about what God's word has declared. Deuteronomy chapter 17 gave instructions about kingship, and it doesn't say anything about marrying Pharaoh's daughter, Uh, but it, it does say don't make friendship with Pharaoh or open trade with him, or purchase horses from him. Don't do anything, in other words, that causes you to go back to Egypt. Doesn't say anything about a wife. But in my experience, uh, a wife ties you to someone a little more than a a horse. Okay, I don't have a horse. I have a father-in-law and I have two guys in town that I bought cars from. And I don't know two of their names. I'm rather close to the third person and I would do a lot for him. In other words, I'm I'm simply challenging. Does it take much to say God doesn't want Solomon to marry the daughter of the king of Egypt? If the purpose in Deuteronomy 17 is don't buy horses because that will get you close to Pharaoh and bring you back, cause you to have this relationship, then surely God doesn't want you marrying into his family and owing him uh, your uh, assistance in war or trusting in his horses, which often would have been part of the negotiation of a wife of Pharaoh's uh, daughters anyway. And so that's one problem with this kind of writing off this foreign wife issue. The other is that the heart of the law may not explicitly say you shall not marry an Egyptian woman, but obviously the heart of God's law is that if you marry a foreign wife, she needs to be a believer. Uh, It's not just a new Testament teaching that we're not to be unequally yoked. God clearly desired that for his people from the beginning. Why is Ruth okay? She's a Moabite. By the way, I didn't notice any of the commentaries saying they weren't supposed to marry Moabites, but actually Moses does say that too. So why is Ruth okay? Because she's a believer. Maybe it wasn't okay for the first husband. Maybe she wasn't a believer at that point and that was a sin. We, We don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but when Boaz marries her, she's a believer. That's different than marrying Pharaoh's daughter. When we know, as we proceed, especially in first chron- uh, second chronicles, we discover that one of the women for whom uh, Solomon builds a temple for her gods is the daughter of the king of Egypt. So she's not a convert. And so just I think even the way commentaries write, good commentaries some of the ones that you see behind me that I use every week that are good commentaries, even those expose how deceptive our hearts are. Even when looking at Solomon's sins, we want to excuse some of it. Why would we want to do that? Well, we're always looking for excuses when it comes to sin. It's just the habit we're in. And so we we do this with that that we see it with the other thing the text lists as a negative for Solomon. The high places. And this one is explicitly listed. Uh, Solomon uh, loves the Lord, but he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. And once again, a lot of these commentaries come in and say, well, the high places weren't a problem. It was just burning incense at them that's a problem but it's okay. There's no temple yet. They're allowed to be at these high places. As long as you don't sacrifice, it's a good place for devotion. It's a good place for prayer and worship, just not sacrifice. And once again, I think it shows, it shows our hearts. Deuteronomy 12 verses two through four makes it clear that the high places were not acceptable to God, period. There, they're told, go in, wipe out the pagan one, and devastate that spot, and don't worship there. In fact, I I actually think in this instance, the NIV really gets one of the phrases uh, excellently, because the NIV's translation says, and you shall not use that place for worship. Something like that. Um, That's clearly what the text is saying, whether that's a good translation or not. Deuteronomy 12. God is not saying just go in and whitewash the pagan place of worship and you can use it yourself. He's saying destroy it and don't use it. And then if you ask, well, why would God care about that? I just, we don't have time tonight. Go read the prophets. It's clear why God didn't want that because whitewashing a pagan place of worship doesn't, the whitewash wears off eventually. Idolatry you can only cover up for a while. And syncretistic worship and syncretistic religion always ends up looking more like the original religion than the true faith. And so here we have these two sins on Solomon's part, high places and this foreign wife, and specifically a treaty with Egypt. And yet the same verses... Could they speak more positively about Solomon? It says Solomon loved the Lord. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. So it's not he seemed to love the Lord. Everyone was really fooled. Can you you believe how fooled we all were by Solomon? It says, the Holy Spirit says, he loved God. That's great praise. The, the follow-up is a great praise too. Walking in the statutes of his father, David. Great praise. This is a man of faith. So we have the negatives, but we also have the, the positives. In other words, these three verses are telling us Solomon has a divided heart. A heart that loves God and still follows after the dictates of of his own uh, sinful treasures and pleasures and lusts and passions. He has a divided heart. And, of course, this is how we can so easily be as well. I want you to note something about the high places here because I find it so intriguing how the Holy Spirit communicates about this we read in verse 2, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Doesn't that sound like a legitimate excuse? But it's the Holy Spirit telling us that, the same Holy Spirit who back in Deuteronomy 12 forbid doing this very thing. I think what the Holy Spirit is doing is voicing it the way that our hearts voice it, to expose how divided we are, how quick to make an excuse. Well, of course they sacrificed at the high place. There was no temple. What else were they supposed to do? You have to worship somewhere. He's putting it in language that exposes how sinful our hearts are. Here's the reality. Verse 15, the Ark of the Covenant is sitting on Mount Zion with God's approval. Our hearts say, what else were they supposed to do? But David had set the example by worshiping at the God-approved location at the Ark of the Covenant. And So the Holy Spirit is exposing ourselves here as well, how quickly we make things sound legitimate. Like, well, of course I disrespected my parents because they're wrong, right? And maybe they are wrong. So what else was I supposed to do? Or my employer hasn't earned my respect. Or uh, if we don't worship like this, a visitor will never come back again. So of course we need those visitors, we have to worship like this. Or, I'll never get ahead in my career unless I commit this sin or get involved in this lifestyle. Of course God wants me to get ahead in my career, so I'll engage in this sin. Or, maybe one of the hardest ones, I think, if I don't negotiate belief so that I can date this person, I'll be alone forever. Now, obviously, God doesn't want me to be alone forever, so I can negotiate some of these things. Uh, and on and on, right? You can probably all fill in several blanks for yourself with how deceptive our hearts are. I think another thing that, um, that really uh, should cause us to not feel superior to Solomon, to see how deceptive our hearts can be, is when we compare the parallel text to this, which is 2 Chronicles 1, 1 through 13. By the way, maybe this is my defense for why I keep saying 2 Kings. Because 1 Kings and Second Chronicles are parallel. Uh, and I've been reading, I, I have a side-by-side version. Maybe, that's my, that's my excuse. See, this is my excuse for not knowing what I'm preaching on three weeks in a row. Um, second Chronicles one, one through 13 in presenting this same account tells us why Gibeon was the high place, the great high place. It's because the tent of meeting was there. Now, how could that not be God approved? It's the tent of meeting which Moses, the man of God, had commissioned. God had commissioned through Moses. It was where they were supposed to worship in the wilderness. How could it be anything but appropriate to be there offering sacrifices? But the reality is it's an empty shell. That tent had a purpose to house the ark of the covenant of God, which represented God with his people. But the ark isn't there at Gibeon. The ark is sitting in Jerusalem at Mount Zion, waiting for the temple. The ark is surrounded by all this material that David had collected for building the temple. It's all just waiting for Solomon and the tent is empty. It's just canvas, and how easily then we can deceive ourselves. But it was the original tabernacle spot, but now it's empty. Our, our hearts are divided and deceptive, and Solomon's is as well. But I hope we can see with that that it's a very subtle thing, a very subtle thing that temptation does. It's the, t- it's the tent of meeting. How can this be wrong? And yet God had forbidden high places. Is our heart, your heart, divided? Uh, Are there areas in your heart that are uh, your blind spot? Like C.S. Lewis writes about reading people who are dead from a different generation, exposes, sure, there are things that you're not as in temptation to as they are, but they also expose your Blind spots, and that's something we need here. We look at Solomon. Well, we would never do this, or we would never have a thousand concubines, right? We don't have to worry about being tempted into his blind spot, Uh, but what are our blind spots? What are the things to which we shrug our shoulders? Well, secondly, as we look at verse four, uh, and this is really a sub-point to Solomon's divided heart, we see a zealous love. Notice that Solomon comes and he, he brings a thousand burnt offerings. A thousand offerings that are, are, for, are for sin atonement. It's, we shouldn't read this as Solomon offering them personally. He brings them, probably Zadok the priest is there offering them up, or some other priest is there offering them up. The emphasis here is the zeal he has for God. Do you want to know what kind of love he has for God? That's mentioned in verse 3. He brings a thousand offerings. Now, uh, again, Second Chronicles comes in here and it informs us that he calls all the leaders of Israel together. So when we read of a thousand uh, offerings for sin, it's not Solomon just uh, not, not having faith that the one offering is enough. It's Solomon as a representative of the people offering up for all of Israel. And this is an amazing thing that he's doing in one sense because, uh, well, Israel is being united and united for worship and united by a mediator who seeks to see the people atoned for, who acknowledges the people's sins and the need for blood. And apparently Solomon's doing this out of his own back pocket. Now, I looked to see if this was required of new kings anywhere. And I didn't find that anywhere. Not that I read all of Deuteronomy this week. But I I don't believe that any king of Israel was required to personally give a thousand offerings for the people on becoming king. Solomon apparently is taking this out of what he inherited from dad out of his own uh, bank account. He is paying for a thousand bulls to be sacrificed for the nation's sins. This is a, a zealous love for God. And yet again, it's in the wrong place. It's not before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord at Mount Zion. We can have a sincere love for God and we can have real zeal And yet the zeal can be misplaced. That's a lesson we're taught over and over and over again in scripture. And it's one we always need to assess our own hearts. Is my zeal misdirected, even though I sincerely love the Lord? Well, God, in his infinite mercy and grace, condescends in his love for Solomon here even though it's in the wrong place he comes to solomon and he gives him this blank check ask and i will give this is a sign of his affection also for solomon and in what follows we we see in verses 5 and 6 solomon's deep gratitude he's given this blank check and instead of instead of getting all excited about that instead he First pauses to express gratitude. God, you have been gracious and and good to David, my father. You've been good to me as well. This is an important step in uh, uniting our heart or seeking the spirit to unite our heart to fear God's name. In fighting the divided heart, gratitude Gratitude uh, draws us. Because think about our divided hearts. So many of the sins that spring out of a divided heart come from discontentment, jealousy, covetousness, greed. All of these things come from a root of presumption. I deserve better than I have. I deserve more than I have. Whereas gratitude says, I don't deserve what I have. And so it is such an important key point in coming to the Lord and seeking a unified heart before him. Gratitude, you have given, I did not deserve. Hear what Thomas Manton has to write about thanksgiving and gratitude. The usefulness of gratitude appears with respect to faith, love, and obedience. With respect to faith, faith and praise live or die together. If there be faith, there will be praise. If there be praise, there will be faith. Praise provides the content of trust and represents God to us as a storehouse of all good things, and a sure foundation for dependence. So we see Solomon's deep gratitude, and we should seek gratitude as well if we would have our hearts united to fear God's name. And then in seven through nine, we see Solomon's humble dependence, humble dependence. He says to God, I am but a child. And I do not know how to go out or come in humble dependence. You've called me to this life, but who is sufficient for for this calling? This is a great nation. They need a righteous judge. And I'm just a child. We we don't. Solomon wasn't like five when he said this. He is humble acknowledgement of his need for God. Who am I? Who am I to do this great thing? It's interesting that when God says, I have done according to your words, verse 12, see, I have given you a wise and understanding heart. You could read that as in this moment, I've done it. You asked, I did it. I think you can also read it as I've already given you a wise heart. The mere fact that he is wise enough to ask in humble dependence for wisdom when he could ask for anything else is a sign that God had already worked wisdom in this young man's heart. And and this is, of course, what James gets at. It is wisdom to ask for wisdom. James uh, chapter 1, 5 through 6, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Solomon, in humble dependence, asks for wisdom. And again, why does he ask for wisdom? He doesn't ask for wisdom for his own advancement. And he doesn't ask for wisdom for the sake of his own pride or his own safety or his own future, he asks for wisdom for the glory of God and for the good of the people. That's what humble wisdom always should aim for. We not only need deep gratitude, but a humble dependence that cries out for, for God to give the right thing, the thing that we need Most, not the thing that we always want most, but the thing we need most. And remember what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be filled. I know I say this whenever that comes up, but remember Martin Lloyd Jones here it isn't those who hunger and thirst for blessedness shall be blessed, it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be blessed here. Solomon is hungering and thirsting for righteousness and God blesses him. And then verses 10 through 15 with God's response and the, and the afterward here in verse 15, we, we see an extravagant covenant. I almost say extravagant grace, but it's an extravagant covenant of grace. So we we see God's extravagant goodness. He's so pleased by the humility and the dependence that he gives all that Solomon asked for along with wisdom, didn't ask for along with wisdom, right? He gives the riches, he gives the life, he gives all of these things. Notice though that the long life, unlike the riches and the fame, the long life is contingent. It's contingent on the covenant, isn't it? Those words in verse 14. So if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. What is God doing there? He's referencing 2 Samuel chapter 7, the covenant promise he made to David about David's sons. In other words, God is drawing Solomon back to the covenant promises. Remember the covenant. He doesn't use the word there, but that's what he's doing. Remember the covenant I made with your father, David. And if you do, as I call on you to do in that covenant, I keep my word, which has an implicit threat as well, doesn't it? Because that same covenant of 2 Samuel 7 said, if they don't, I'll discipline them. But if they do, I'll do this for them. Solomon's being brought back in God's extravagant grace and, and mercy and love. He's being brought back to the covenant. Now, sadly, we know that Solomon... Solomon didn't keep with what he'd been given here. But the point here isn't about how faithfully does Solomon moving forward. We'll get to that as we get into the rest of the book. The point here is to think about God and his extravagant way of working with his people. I think in one sense, verses 10 through 15, we could reflect on what Christ says in the parable of the talents. He who is faithful with a little will be entrusted with much. Solomon is faithful to this point with wisdom and humility. He's a sinner. He has those sins still glaringly there in verses 1 and 2, but he's been faithful with the wisdom he's been given. God is going to give him wisdom and riches and fame as well. We know, we know he doesn't use them well, but God is showing us something about his extravagant, gracious covenant. And then notice this other thing about this glorious covenant. God calls Solomon back to the covenant in verse 15, 14. And then what does Solomon do? Does he comprehend that God is calling him back to the covenant? That the 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 answer to a divided heart is to return to the promises of God. Yes, he gets it. Verse 15, we don't read that he awoke and was so amazed at the dream, he offered up sacrifices right there at the great high place. We also don't read that he woke up, realized it was a dream, and he went home. We read that he woke up, realized he'd had this dream, this vision of God, He went to Jerusalem. He stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And what he'd already done at Gibeon, he did over the next day. He offered at the right place before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the burnt offerings. And now he's at peace. He offers also the peace offerings and celebrates the covenant of God with his servants. This is the type of covenant God we have. He's extravagantly blessed Solomon, and that result is the, the covenant king Solomon blessing his subjects initially as well in that context of the covenant well we'll we'll continue with Solomon's life but as we do this this year and and as we walk away tonight surely humility should be the great thing on our hearts humility both as we think about how like Solomon we really are how like Solomon with our divided uh, hearts the hearts that want to cling to these sins over here and uh, And uh, love God at the same time as if that's not going to be in conflict, but also humility as we then reflect on the mercies of God in Christ, that even to a divided heart as mine, God's grace is sufficient and comes and that God doesn't leave us where he found us. He brings us back to the covenant over and over again. Solomon's going to mess up. But we have Ecclesiastes and Proverbs because of that. Isn't that a sign of how our God's covenant promises and his grace work throughout the life of the sinner, throughout the life of the divided saint for his glory and the good of his people? What Solomon desired, even through his sinful experiences, God created two of the greatest books of wisdom ever, delivered them to us through him. We ought to have a deep humility at the extravagant grace of God in the covenant we have, not through one with a divided heart like Solomon, but through the king who has the undivided heart and who gave the one sacrifice that was sufficient to bring us peace with God. So let us have... Humble hearts to cry out with David. Unite my heart to fear your name. Well, let's pray.